The year is 133 AD. The place, along the northernmost periphery of the Roman Empire, Roman Britannia. A young Roman legionnaire mans his post on Hadrian's Wall, an imposing stone wall stretching some 80 miles across Britannia from the North Sea to the Irish Sea. Built by the Romans a decade earlier at the behest of Roman Emperor Hadrian, Hadrian's Wall is designed to guard against incursions into the empire by the barbarian Picts who inhabit the northern fringes of the British Isles, what today is northern England and Scotland. The young legionnaire hails from the north of Hispania, commonly known in today's world as Spain. This duty assignment in northern Britannia is so remote, so alien, that it makes the young, inexperienced legionnaire feel as though he is beyond the pale of civilization. He may as well be on the edge of the earth. He nervously casts his eyes out across the windswept, mysterious, foreboding landscape to the north, waiting, watching, hoping to catch a glimpse of one of these so-called barbarians or Picts, who perhaps has ventured within eyeshot of Hadrian's Wall. The North American Wood Ape Conservancy has constructed its own version of Hadrian's Wall in a remote valley of the Washita Mountain ecoregion that we refer to as Area X. It's an area where we continue to document the presence of a species for which science presently has assigned no taxon. The NAWAC's Hadrian's Wall is not constructed of stones and mortar. It comprises a number of state-of-the-art camera traps laid out in a formidable but concealed and surreptitious layered grid pattern, stretching some 350 meters north to south and some 60 meters east to west. It is designed to capture multiple photo images or videos of anything or anyone who ventures into its ever-vigilant network of motion detection camera traps. We too hope to catch an image of barbarians, or as we refer to them, wood apes, also known as Bigfoot, Oma, or Sasquatch. Our images, should we be so fortunate to obtain them, will be collected and shared with the world, and they will be preserved for posterity. I'm Matt Pruitt of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and in this episode, you're going to hear a discussion about the NAWAC's Hadrian Project with team members who deployed our camera trap, Hadrian's Wall. You will also hear about a recent scouting trip into the valley that resulted in a startling and close visual encounter of another large, gray Sasquatch. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us. Welcome to this episode of Apes Among Us, the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. My name is Matt Pruitt, and I'm joined today by Daryl Collier. Hey, Matt. How are you, man? I'm doing very good. How about yourself? Doing well on a Saturday. Got my uh, my bleachers and my sprints in, and now I'm going to get this recording done, and then I've got a 500-page book to read and a 15-page paper to write on it, so it's good. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a busy Saturday for sure. That's That's working. It's good work, though. Indeed. Well, I know that we've probably taken on a lot of new listeners. Several of our members, including myself, were on a few podcasts with very large audiences recently. So we definitely want to say thanks to uh, Wes at Sasquatch Chronicles for having us. And so I'm kind of anticipating that we're going to have a lot of newer listeners who might not be familiar with the group. So wanted to 
introduce ourselves to them to some degree. So, you know, we are the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. We're a nonprofit organization that's focused on verifying and validating the existence of this enigmatic hominoid species that's commonly referred to as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And, you know, one of the things with this nomenclature of being the North American Wood Ape Conservancy is I'm often asked, what's the difference between a wood ape and a Sasquatch? The way people used to ask, you know, what's the difference between a Bigfoot and a Sasquatch? So, Daryl, with your tenure in this group from the early days, maybe you could talk about why the shift was made to adopt this new nomenclature and kind of abandon the, the monikers of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Well, with, with Bigfoot, for instance, uh, there's, a, there's a stigma attached, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, a comical, it's a comical sort of stigma. And the same with Sasquatch. You, you have all these silly commercials, and they're, you know, some of them are good commercials, but uh, uh, you, know, you just have the gamut of, of silliness that uh, is associated with, with those terms. And so back in about 2013, uh, we decided to uh, uh, adopt a, uh, an appellation that we thought was more fitting, and which actually we, we did not originate the appellation of Wood Ape. Uh, that was in the literature uh, regarding Sasquatches, uh, and we had uh, uncovered some of that literature and some usage going back to the uh, 60s and 70s. And, um, and also, the, you know, there are there's in the fossil record, there are some species referred to as wood apes. And so we just thought it was appropriate and we decided to go with that. And it seems to be more appropriate with what we are actually uh, trying to document, the behavior, the, uh, the habitat. It, these things seem to be apes and they like to inhabit wooded areas. And therefore, we went with wood ape. Uh, in lieu of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Oma, the other, the other uh, appellations that are commonly used. Definitely. I think that's a very responsible decision. Uh, you know, those words do have so much baggage that comes along with them. I always thought it was hilarious that, you know, the, the first real introduction to the idea of mystery apes in the modern consciousness came from the Himalayas and the, you know, the British expeditions to climb Everest and those explore those regions. So I think it's funny to explore the dichotomy of, of language use between, you know, the British encountering strange tracks and, and dubbing it the abominable snowman. And then Americans, <laughs> Americans find strange tracks. We're like, it's Bigfoot. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, those, those terms just carry so much history. And a lot of which is, is, yeah, it's, it's, it invokes the tabloid, the cartoonish, the ghost story campfire monster. And so I, I think a lot of what we try to do in our outreach for new listeners and for seasoned listeners alike, is we're trying to demystify this phenomenon and say that, you know, the observations that we're talking about are not, you know, claims about encountering the tabloid creature or the cartoon monster. Rather, and that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. There are these modern day observations of this species of hominoid that might be connected to these species that we know used to exist. And so it is a lot of it, for me at least, is trying to extract the biological wood ape from within the mythological Sasquatch. Um, I, I do like the word Sasquatch because it at least harkens yeah, to too. indigenous peoples, uh, First Nations people in Canada. So there's like this historical element. But yeah, wood ape, wood apes are Bigfoots, are Sasquatches. But we prefer the nomenclature of wood ape uh, as it grounds it a little bit more in reality. So for any new listeners, that's why we use that particular term. 
Yeah, and we are dedicated to documentation, discovery, conservation, and so that's the name, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Uh, for sure, we've not been able to uh, achieve our objective yet, which is to have the species of, uh, officially formally listed uh, by uh, uh, scientific convention and, and government, but uh, we're working toward that. And once that does happen, then absolutely we will be fully dedicated to uh, not only the conservation of the species, but the conservation of its habitat. And so that's where we derive the name from, uh, North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Also, I think a lot of new listeners might have been introduced to this idea of this, you know, Shangri-La paradise of, of Sasquatch activity that's Area X because it's it's talked about so often. That's our primary area of operations. But I think it'd be worth explaining to new listeners that, you know, the, the group for a long time, you know, even prior to my involvement years ago, were focused on multiple areas that had just been given random letter designations, X, Y, and Z. And it just so happened that this one particular area in the Washita Mountains produced the most activity, the most reliably. And so the other research areas were abandoned. This one was, you know, a lot more conducive to what we were trying to do. It's a lot more secluded and isolated and uh, devoid of human intruders. It's not public land, et cetera. And so Area X is a place where we operate that's a fantastic environment that might constitute a core area within a territory of these animals range. Uh, but certainly, uh, maybe we have to demystify what Area X is a little bit for listeners, too. And we considered a long time ago that we needed to focus our attention in one, perhaps two areas. And so we had several areas, like you said, and we we uh, ascribed names to those designators to each area. And they were just, you know, Area A, Area B. Uh, we had an Area S, an Area X, an Area Y, an Area Z. <laughs> and through time, those those areas uh became narrowed down to one or two. And it just so happened that Area X, with the cool sounding name, the coolest sounding name, happened to be the area uh, that seemed to have the most promise. It, uh, it, it seemed to, to have the most activity that we could that we could not attribute to any other type of species. And so then ultimately we we focused all of our attention on this area. This area in the Washita Mountains, in the Washita Mountain ecoregion of Oklahoma and Arkansas, we focused all our attention on this particular area. And so that's uh, that's what we talk about. Uh, that's what we're talking about when we say Area X. It, it, you know, it, and it does have a sort of a mysterious sound to it. It, it is a mysterious place. It's extremely remote extremely rugged you know this 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 area we go to uh is is largely uninhabited by people uh, now out on the peripheries uh, once you get out of this particular valley in which we operate uh yeah then you'll have an occasional settlement occasional house uh farmhouse or whatever but you have to go about 50 50 miles in one direction you have to go about 25 or 30 in the other direction before you can even get to a town of any uh, of, of any size, and so uh, it's an extremely remote area, and uh, it's probably I've said before it's the most remote area, in my opinion, east of the Rocky Mountains. And uh, we, uh, you know, we're just we're glad to be there, and we've and over over the last uh, fifteen years, we've made some extraordinary observations. Uh, as I said, we've we've yet to be able to definitively uh, 
provide evidence uh, of this species existence, but uh, we believe we, we're on the verge. We've been on the verge for a number of years and we just keep trying new things. And, uh, and so one of those things we're trying and that we're going to talk about in this, in this particular episode is a, a camera trap project. It, uh, Matt um, uh, alluded to in the cold open uh, to which we refer as Hadrian's wall. There is such a wealth of data that this group has collected over the years in Area X. And so for our newer listeners, there's a lot of that that's been covered in previous episodes. So if you'll go back through the previous Apes Among Us episode, there's a lot to learn. On the website, there's a document called the Washita Project Monograph that details a lot of these observations from the first few years of the operation. And then, of course, there's other papers like uh, the TAG-7 paper, which is about a radio tag that deployed that you can hear about that I know was discussed on Sasquatch Chronicles as well. But now what we're talking about today is kind of an update from Area X, of what's going on previously. In our last episode uh, that was recorded at the member retreat, we recapped last year's summer operation. And we introduced some ideas that we were going to be implementing, one of which is this camera array that we've dubbed Hadrian's Wall. Daryl wrote this fantastic cold open that you heard me read in the beginning, but uh, he's the resident historian in this group. And so hopefully uh, he can inform me a bit more of the details about the uh, events that I just read about, because I have to say I'm not intimately familiar with those details. So uh, what were the details of Hadrian's Wall and the historical events surrounding that? Well, Hadrian's Wall was constructed in the second century AD by the Roman Empire. You had the British Isles, at which time the Romans uh, referred to the British Isles as Britannia. Hadrian's Wall was constructed uh, around 122, AD 122, 123, under the order of the emperor, the Roman emperor Hadrian. And it was to keep the barbarians from the northern peripheries of Britannia from penetrating down into the south and uh, attacking the Romans and the Britons who resided down there, the Roman Britons who resided down there. And it was a wall that stretched across the entire length from west to east, east to west, across Britannia, uh, sort of northern, what we would call northern England now. It wasn't really in, in, in present-day Scotland. It was at the sort of northern England. It was a defensive fortification that was built. It was it was quite formidable. And the Romans uh, would, would man this wall. They had turrets, mile castles and turrets that were stationed at different intervals throughout uh, along this wall. Uh, about every five miles, there would be a fort along the wall. And so the wall was, uh, it was there to keep the picks out, P-I-C-T-S, um, uh, or as the Romans refer to them, barbarians who had a nasty habit of, of, uh, of coming down into uh, the southern reaches of Britannia and uh, raiding and terrorizing and uh, looting and collecting booty. And, and, uh, and so the Romans, you know, as, as they were great, great at building things, they built this massive wall that stretched across Britannia. And so we took inspiration from that with our camera trap project. Uh, Brian Brown coined the, the term Hadrian's Wall, which I thought was a great name for our camera trap project, because it is essentially a wall of cameras that stretches across this this valley floor, 300 meters from north to south, about 60 meters east to west. And it's a wall that one would have to penetrate in order to get from one point west over to one point east or vice versa. So if you were coming from the west and you wanted to get to our camp, you would have to penetrate this so-called Hadrian's Wall of camera traps that we've installed. And so that's a little bit of the historical background on it. And uh, I just love the name. I thought it was great. Um 
it, you know, it's a great throwback uh, to to the Romans, and uh, just thought it was such a great name. And so that's what we that's what we call it. It's the it's the Hadrian Project, but the wall is called Hadrian's Wall. And so there there you have the background on it. And listeners who want to hear more about how this was you know conceived and how it was developed, you can go back and listen to the episode titled "Variants 2019 Field Operation Recap." And there's a great interview there with uh, Ed Harrison who conceived this uh, camera array and designed it. But luckily for us, now it's up and now it's active, currently watching the Valley as we speak. So in this episode, we're going to be speaking with Mike Mays, the chairman of the board of directors of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and one of our members, Bud Melliker, who worked on these cameras. We're going to hear about what it took to get these cameras ready, to have them modified, and the process of deploying those cameras. And Daryl, we're also going to speak to another guest about a recent observation of a wood ape in Area X during a recent reconnaissance mission, correct? Yeah, um, we're going to have Dusty Haithcote uh, and a friend of his who was with them. Uh, they were conducting a, a scouting operation in, in Area X before the uh, this year's operation proper began. And uh, they had an interesting encounter, again, with one of those big gray barbarians, <laughs> uh, one of the big gray apes, uh, big gray Sasquatches. They had a very interesting encounter right there at camp. And so, yeah, we're going to talk to them and let's get some details on that. Very interesting. I think the listeners will, will like to hear that. Excellent. Well, with that, we'll get into this interview with Mike Mays and Bud Milliker. So for our listeners who've listened to episode 14, which was uh, entitled Variance 2019 Field Operation Recap, you might recall an in-depth interview with one of our members, Ed Harrison, about a camera array project that uh, he conceptualized and that we were talking about putting into place called Hadrian's Wall. And that is finally in place now, thanks in part to Bud Melliker, who you might remember from the Citizen Science episode and Mike Mays, chairman of the board of directors of the NAWAC. And so we have them with us now to talk about the cameras themselves, the modifications, and their recent deployment. So uh, I guess we could start with with Bud. What was that process like of uh, receiving those cameras? Can you talk about how many cameras are in the array and the work that had to be done to bring those up to speed to be ready to be deployed as part of this uh, project? Sure. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, actually, there's 24 cameras in the array, and uh, this was all brought together by Ed Harrison, like you previously mentioned, and uh, we scattered them to cover the valley floor. There's a 24 cameras in the array. They essentially are staggered and face each other and they form a wall, so to speak, Hadrian's wall. 16 of those cameras are set to take photos, uh, rapid fire eight shot. Eight are set for video. The deployment was a uh, struggle to some extent. Mike will be able to chime in on that here. But uh, we actually used a, a technique with, called camo hide, which were sheets of latex bark that we bought from a gentleman in South Africa. And there was a shipping problem here with the COVID, so the deploy was late. But uh, other than that, it was getting them together. You have to do some work on the camo hides to make them fit the metal boxes that we have our cameras installed in. And... Uh, Anyway, that was about that. Again, for listeners who listened to episode 10, Citizen Scientists, we spoke with Bud about a few cameras that we had deployed previously, and there were modifications in place. You know, it's it's been speculated for a very long time that potentially wood apes might see into the IR or the near IR range, which is not at all 
uh, it shouldn't be a contentious issue. I mean, I've been using game cameras in the field for years and have documented many examples of animals walking directly by these cameras during the daylight without noticing them and then staring directly at them at night. So a lot of animals that are you know, selected for night vision or have a, a greater night vision capacity than we do can see that IR light. So maybe, Bud, you could talk about the process of disabling these IR flashes on such a large number of cameras and maybe a little bit about how long that took and what that process was like. Sure, Matt. Uh, yes, it took a little bit of time because, like I said, 24 cameras. I had to actually remove the backs off of each one, get access to the circuit board where the wires for the flash unit were attached, and actually unsoldered those wires from the circuit board just because we could actually re-enable re them by resoldering them if we ever wanted to in the future. But yeah, the whole process of the IR thing was just a guess. So with these, with this wall and this array, we are sacrificing anything at in at night, basically, uh, just on the chance that these animals can spot these things. Even though they are our, the cameras that have the higher frequency IR, it's supposed to be a black ops type moniker. But uh, anyway, that's that's what we did, and it it took a full day sitting there doing them. Yeah, Matthew, you and I have had discussions before, and and we wrote about this in the in the Washita Project monograph about how we think it's possible, even perhaps likely, that animals that have um, uh, superior visual acuity at night probably have to compromise some some daytime visual acuity. So I, I guess I was a little bit disappointed when I actually saw the images of these cameras after they had been deployed. Uh, the camo hide is, is, is nice. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it looks pretty good, but, um, as you all know, there is a point at which when you're looking at these cameras, they, they, they protrude out from the tree. And so they look sort of, even under the camo hide from, from a, a side angle, they look a little bit unnatural. And to me, it just seems like the, they're, they're probably going to get detected, but, I think we, you know, because we have the IR disabled, they're not going to give themselves away at night, these cameras. But I think if an, if an animal has a bit of a compromised daytime visual acuity, I think that's to our advantage. Uh, you think, Matt? To me, it's really clear from the canon of data re related to, you know, observations and encounters, the most reliable, incredible observation and encounter testimonies with wood apes that they have superior night vision to us. And they almost behave as if they expect us to have the same ability to see. You know, I don't think they have the cognitive power to understand that we perceive the world differently than they do. So even at night, they seem to be hiding and, and remaining behind large obstructions in total darkness. There are thermal footages that uh, reveal that sort of behavioral set. So you'd think there'd have to be some trade-off in terms of daylight vision. And another thing that you see very often in this data set, the grander data set, and in the NAWAC data is that they seem to be mostly cued into motion during the daylight. And so just the, the number of sightings by hunters during daylight, people who are stationary, who are camouflaged, either in blinds, stationary on the ground, or in tree stands, are able to have these really long extended observations where it's just clear that the animal does not realize that there's a person in the environment. And so the fact that these cameras are stationary, I think helps tremendously, even if they do present, you know, if they break up the profile of the tree somewhat, you know, there's not a huge color differential because this camo hide product 
is pretty darn accurate in terms of mimicking this bark or emulating the kind of trees that you select them for because they make these products to uh, be fitted on certain species of trees. But the fact that they're just totally stationary, they don't make any sound, they don't emit any light, I think will work in our favor because we are aiming for daylight photos. And I'd, I'd love to hear Mike talk about if we're, we're trying to build an array with overlapping fields of view, so that's like the, the top of this hierarchy of goals that we've kind of set up of what is this intended to do. And it's not just to get a photograph of an ape. It's so that if an ape passes through a given area, it's being photographed by multiple cameras simultaneously from multiple fields of view. So to achieve that, you're kind of restricted to, all right, if these cameras have, you know, whatever their field of view is in terms of, you know, distance in feet or I guess uh, square or cubic footage of, of space, then you have to use whatever tree is available to you, no matter how large, no matter how skinny, whatever the diameter. And we're restricted because we bought a certain product to use trees of a certain species. So maybe Mike, you can tell us about what it was like to finally put boots on the ground and have to select trees and put these out, knowing that you have like a, this set of restrictions or limitations in place. Sure, Matt. Um, it, it was a challenge in some cases, as you said, uh, you know, Bud did a great job. We, and, and Ed had it all laid out for us. Um, I'm sure Ed thought he had idiot proofed it for us, but we proved him wrong. <laughs> so we, uh, but Bud had uh, two links of rope cut to the appropriate links, uh, you know, as far as how far these cameras were supposed to uh, be apart from one another. And um, what I would do is I would take that, uh, you know, one end of the rope from, from where Bud was, he'd give me a heading and um, using his compass and I would head off in the uh, appropriate direction until that rope was stretched out. Now, the problem we ran into was, uh, you know, there's stuff in the way. There's gnarly greenbrier uh, vines. There are trees in the way. There are drop-offs and, and creeks and all, all kinds of stuff down in there that we have to navigate. And sometimes you, you would have to go around that stuff and then try to guesstimate how much sideways, um, you know, how, how much uh, rope you took going sideways and have to guesstimate a little bit to add or subtract the actual length from where I was uh, for Bud if I could have drawn a straight line. Sometimes you'd get the appropriate to the appropriate spot and there was no tree. And so at that point, you've got to you know, find the the closest one. And so that kind of skews the array just a little bit. There were times when um, uh, you would get to the appropriate location. Bud had mentioned, uh, I believe, that some of these cameras were shooting video. In most cases, the cameras that were going to be shooting video were meant to be back-to-back on the same tree. And sometimes uh, the direction one of the cameras was facing was good. You know, there was a a nice view. Uh, At other times, the camera that was supposed to be on the other side of the tree facing the opposite direction, it might be facing, uh, you know, right into a a big briar patch or right into another tree or, or, you know, the view just was not good. And so there were times when we just had to make a command decision to, to move that camera slightly left or right. And, um, and again, that does affect the array and the coverage a little bit. But it was, uh, you know, if we had stuck strictly to the letter of the law there, 
you know, it would have been assured that that camera captured nothing because it was staring straight into, a, you know, a rock or a tree or something. So we, we, we did have to do some of that. Uh, that did uh, create some challenges for us. Um, and just getting around in there, that's the rockiest place I've, I've ever seen. I have no idea how any animal can run through that place and not snap their ankles. There were other times when the appropriate distance where a camera was supposed to be was right in the middle of a creek. So again, we would have to we would have to make a decision. Uh, do we want to put it on this side of the creek or that side of the creek? Which do we think is better? Uh, things like that. So, you know, on paper, you know, it's drawn to perfection. Uh, in reality, the way we had to, to put it out, there were some, um, you know, we had to make some concessions and uh, it, it makes it less than perfect. But, you know, there are 24 of them out there covering the whole valley floor. And the way I look at it is there, yeah, there may be some small holes because of these in cover, small holes in coverage because of these concessions we had to make. Uh, but we had no choice, first of all. But also, you know, there's 24 out there now where two weeks ago there were none. And I feel pretty good about it. I think this is the the best chance that we have, have ever given ourselves to, to get photographs. And uh, it, it's it's a pretty impressive uh, plan that Ed came up with. And I'm, I'm really pleased. And uh, you know, I would also like to address what Daryl said a little earlier about, you know, the visibility of the cameras. And he, he's right. Uh, in profile, they do protrude. They do create kind of a bulge from the trunk of the tree. And I think to some degree that's kind of uh, calculated into the whole equation. The hope is if an animal detects one camera and he thinks as much as he can think to himself, okay, that's not natural I'm going to avoid that. So in taking a loop around or behind that camera, uh, hopefully he keeps he keeps his eyes focused on that one and he blunders, you know, right in front of two others. You know, that that's kind of the idea behind the array. So, you know, we want them to be as, as camouflaged as possible, but we recognize the fact that, that, you know, these animals are masters of their environment. What we're hoping is that uh, they don't have sort of mental GPS where they remember where all 24 of these cameras are and, uh, and you know, zig and zag around all 24 of them. And I think that's highly unlikely. So I, th I think we're okay. I think even if some are detected, not all of them will be. And alternatively, Mike, uh, you have the curiosity factor. So as we said, you know, they, they are they do protrude out just a bit. Um, maybe they are detectable, and if they are detectable, maybe maybe one of these animals uh, goes to investigate it. Because I mean, when you look at it, it, it just looks weird. I mean, I, it doesn't look I mean, it, do, it doesn't look like technology. It doesn't look man made or anything. It just looks weird, and and so maybe it's anomalous enough so that maybe it will invoke some curiosity. And so then once 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 you get one to go into into the into the maze into the trap right he's busted i mean because you've now you've got now you've got this uh, this array of 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 watchful eyes and he should be photographed or videoed from multiple angles is that is that correct that's absolutely correct and, and if you think back you know we've had cameras out before um, going back to the forest vigil days. And then we, we know we've, we've always had individual cameras out here and there. We've never totally uh, been without 
cameras in the field. Um, but you think back, how many times have we had a camera that was somehow manipulated? Think about those old Braconics cameras that had the big handles, you know, on the sides. Remember how, how often those would be shaken? It seemed like something would come up from behind and push them down or, or, or shake them. Uh, it was it was maddening to think, you know, you know, this thing just came up on the wrong side of the camera. So that went into the design of the array, you know, when Ed uh, put this whole thing together. If something like that were to happen again, you know, so it notices this one, like you said, it's curious. It comes up, it wants to manipulate it, it wants to fool with it. It should be getting its picture taken by one, if not two others. So, we, yeah, we're very hopeful about the uh, the curiosity factor playing into this. Now, we are, in some cases, we're stretching the the capability of the camera range just a bit. We're right on the edge when one camera is looking at another one as to the detection range of, of the camera. So we'll see if uh, they're as good as, as advertised, if that range is as good as advertised. And But that's if it goes right up to the other camera, right? So if he walks, if he walks in between the two of them and he happens to see, if he, if he turns to the right and he sees this protrusion from the tree and then he goes toward the tree, well, well then he would have already been captured by one or two other units. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. Yeah, so uh, unless he's just... Unless he's just right up on, I mean, if these cameras are at the extreme ranges of each other, then I don't really think that's a factor unless he goes up to one camera. And then, and then if he does that, uh, unless he's manipulating it from behind, chances are he's, he's still going to be captured, you know. And so, I, I mean, I just, I think it's a brilliant, uh, a, a brilliant thing. And I, you know, I'm guardedly optimistic. I remember the days of Operation Forest Vigil. We were optimistic about that. But like you said, we placed those cameras just in a willy-nilly fashion. As you recall, Mike, we would just go out and just find a spot that was on a game trail that we thought looked decent. Um, and then we would place them. But, but this is uh, this is based on experience, observations. It's based on knowledge that we have um, Particularly last year, a number of our visuals were in this exact area where these cameras are deployed. And I don't think there's anything or anyone that is going to get through that, uh, get through Hadrian's wall without getting its picture taken. I agree. I, I think this is by far our best, our best shot. And, and, and all those factors you mentioned have certainly played into the planning and the execution uh, you know, the placement of these cameras. But the other thing we had going for us this time that we never had before was just the geography of the valley. The width of, of the valley floor was manageable. Uh, if you think back to Forest Vigil back in the old big thicket days, I mean, you had, we were in a, a unit that was, I don't know, what was it, 25,000 acres or something. And, you know, th there was some method to our madness. It wasn't quite totally willy-nilly, uh, uh, but you're right. We just placed them on game trails, spots that that opened up a little bit where it was clear wildlife had, had passed through. It was so vast. You know, we could have had 200 cameras and not been able to do what we've done here. So the geography of the valley has played, you know, it, it's a, a natural kind of a choke point would be too strong. I think that that would indicate that really, really gets narrow, which it doesn't. But it was narrow enough for us to be able to, to, to have coverage. And anything going east to west, west to east, is going to walk in very close proximity to one of these cameras. Yeah, I mean, 300 meters 
from north to south. That's a pretty that's a pretty good swath of coverage. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree. But it, but it's yeah, it's doable um, without having to have a thousand cameras. You know, um, ideally, I would like to you know, the, these cameras are, are out to the west of where we typically camp and, and where we have our base camps. One of these days, if we ever get the funding uh, and if we we feel like potentially this this is something really good that's going to work. You know, I think it would be great to to have another array uh, to the east of our base camp, and uh, anything coming through in those east to west, west east directions, then for sure is just gonna, you know, it's gonna have to run the gauntlet, and the chances of it getting through without triggering one of those cameras is uh, is pretty small, in my opinion. One of the things that I'd love to point out to our listeners, whether they're field researchers themselves or they might be more skeptical or even cynical, uh, is that this overlapping field of view is so very important for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, people have tried using game cameras in the field to capture images of wood apes for, you know, as long as game cameras have been commercially available, uh, you know, as consumer products. Uh, it, they've thus far pretty well failed. And so you guys have had these observations of cameras seeming to be messed with from behind. And so we can talk a lot about their visibility, if they're detectable via the IR flash. And I think to the skeptical or cynical listener, they might think, what a convenient excuse, you know. Uh, but it's really important to to look into and study literature and uh, like observational field study data related to analogous animals to find correlatives and to learn those lessons. And so one book that I've been hammering on people uh, for about a year now is a book called The Great Soul of Siberia, which is by a Korean researcher named uh, So Young Park. And he researched Siberian tigers. And uh, one of the passages from the book that just riveted me uh, was, you know, because tigers are, they're analogous in the way that they have these very large home ranges and they're very mobile in those home ranges. And so they're really difficult to detect and they move around quite a bit. And despite being these large, visible, kind of pungent, smelly animals, they're still nearly undetectable. And so one of the passages of the book that when I read just kind of floored me, um, he was describing deploying cameras and he said, quote, to film tigers and ungulates, I've been installing cameras in the Usuri forest for nearly 10 years. The tigers found 23 of the cameras I'd fastidiously hidden and destroyed them. I rubbed deer droppings on the small cameras, hoping to mask the metal scent, but they still managed to find and destroy nearly all of them. The act of destruction was never caught on tape, only the sound, because all of the cameras were attacked from behind. The more experienced tigers were more adept at finding the cameras than the young ones, but all tigers, newly independent or mature, dismantled the cameras they found from the back. And so this idea that oh, what a convenient excuse that the wood apes avoid your cameras and mess with them from behind. It's not unprecedented. You, you see this in this other literature, these other examples of animals that, you know, I don't think anyone argues that cats have the same cognitive abilities or the same level of intelligence as great apes or higher primates. And so it's, it's not at all unfathomable. So we're working to address that so that if one is seen, to your point, and avoided, there should be so many overlapping fields of view that it just kind of eliminates that, that even if one is messed with from behind, we should catch the the creature in the act of doing that. And so I was wondering, Bud, if you uh, could weigh in on that, you know, once you had deployed them and seen them kind of in real time and space down there, if you got that sense that it basically was next to impossible in many of these sections to move through without being captured by multiple units from any angle. Yes. Uh, well, kind of a add on to like what Mike said, it was a 
tough process when we got to a spot and looked at trees. And a number of these cameras were supposed to be theoretically mounted back to back on the same tree. We actually had to, like Mike said, mentioned, we had to skew some of the cameras. Some of the cameras we put on one tree and 10 yards away, or maybe not that far, on another tree facing the proper directions. So there are some holes, and uh, but overall, there are 24 cameras out there now. There should be, and like Daryl, I think just mentioned too, if they spot one, they should be able to duck around, and most likely they're not going straight east to west. They, if they angle through the array, they have a chance of getting caught by multiple cameras. And uh, but I, I, I'm fairly confident that they will probably detect some of these cameras. Mike probably got tired of me whining about, you know, I had this plan in my mind how everything was going to go and how it was going to be perfect. And when we immediately found out that that's not the way it was going to go, I was whining a little bit about, oh, I wish I could do this and that. But honestly, <laughs> I think we did a great job. We got them out there. And yes, there's, there probably are a few holes and gaps, but... Uh, well, come on, bud. You know, you know, and I, 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 keep, I keep preaching this. What, what, what do I say? No plan survives contact with reality. Right. So, you know, that you, can't, you, can't, you can't be too married to any one plan on paper. You always have to be very flexible. And y'all were. I mean, in the end, you were, you were absolutely flexible. You made, you made some calls. You made, you made some... Uh, some uh, what do you call them, Mike? Uh, football, some, um, <laughs> some adjustments. We made some ad- audibles. You made some audibles. You 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 got on the field. You saw that it was not it, it was not going to go exactly as it had been planned on paper. You made the adjustments and you went with it. That's all you can do, man. Uh, you know, you make the plan. Plan's always great, but you always have to be ready to, to wad the plan up and throw it in the trash can. You know, if you get on the field and everything's fluid and dynamic and it, it dictates change, and that's what y'all did. So uh, you know, I have to commend you for that. Look it, uh, it, again, it's. Um, you know, 300 meters long, <laughs> six, r- roughly 60 meters wide. Right. And so, I mean, that's a lot of coverage. And it's and um, and Mike said, you know, choke point was probably too strong a word. I don't know. I mean, that, uh, I, I guess um, relative to some places, that's that's not really that narrow. But relative to some, some other places, 300 meters is not very wide in terms of a valley floor. And so, um, it, it, you know, if in ter- I'm thinking in terms of a battlefield, to, to me, that would be very much a choke point. And you've got these high, you've got these high steeps on the north, you've got a high steep on the south, and then you've got this flat valley floor that's roughly uh, 300, 350 meters across. And you've, you gentlemen, you filled that with cameras. And so that's, you know, that, I don't know, it's... Uh, it's exciting. Uh, let's see where it goes. I, I hope in six or seven or eight months when, when, when y'all go back there and you pull those cameras and uh, you, you send me a text or an email and, you, and you've got about 15 or 16 images, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I will say I'm really glad Mike was there with me. He's the one that helped. Uh, you know, we need to go over this tree or we need to go to this tree. The two of us together were able to figure this out. Oh, uh, we we did talk about the fact that if we had, had more people, it might have muddied the situation a little bit because everybody's got their opinions. But with the, just the two of us, we made the decision and went with it. Uh, really, the only thing I think we could have used another couple hands was to haul the gear. We had to make a, a number of trips to camp and back out in the field. And 
It is. It was arduous. Uh, some Sherpas. You needed some Sherpas, man. We needed <laughs> Sherpas. Weak minds and strong back. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, but it was good. And, and going back to the detectability, um, Bud had some concerns. He, he mentioned uh, how he would look at one of these things after we finished and, and just think, oh, that just doesn't look good. You know, that doesn't look good. But we were standing a foot away. When you got a little distance between yourself and the cameras, that they became pretty difficult to detect. Bud, you may recall, we were we had left one camera covered up so it wouldn't take any pictures because we knew we were going to be walking by that spot again, and we didn't want a bunch of pictures of, of ourselves. And so when it came time to go remove the tape from the lens, um, we had a hard time finding that camera, and it was we knew we were close. And we had a hard time finding it. So they're, they're um, a little harder to detect visually than I think we thought initially. Uh, but because, again, we were just standing right on top of them, you know, as we were, uh, you know, we'd get them deployed and we'd take two steps back and kind of hold our head sideways and look at them and think, ah, you know, I don't know. But that camo hide from a distance really does a pretty good job. It's very natural looking. So I, I think we're better there than we might have initially thought. Well, that's good. That's encouraging. Good to hear. Yeah, I'd love to get into some speculation about behaviors and things like that and to kind of address the questions that I imagine the audience might have. I mean, you know, there's always been this, this push and pull about deploying technology and its detectability, uh, you know, how easily it's seen. And again, if you're familiar with the larger canon of data, they, wood apes don't seem to have a problem approaching man-made objects or structures. I mean, the the host of reports, uh, you know, track finds around logging equipment or road building equipment, peering into homes or cabins, looking into parked vehicles, um, approaching tents, approaching campgrounds, raiding dumpsters. So I, I don't think they're averse to that. It seems to me, you know, speculating again that, you know, something that's in their environment, uh, especially in the dark of night, that's rapidly flashing, because let's, let's not kid ourselves here. Those cameras fire all the time. Uh, I mean, having used them myself for years, I can tell you that um, any changes in, in like wind patterns that will move foliage will trigger the cameras. And then there's things as small as insects that can trigger them. And then you have deer and raccoons and possums and bears. And so they're kind of out there always firing to some degree. You'll get loads of pictures at night of almost nothing. So if you have this uh, night vision developed eye, you could probably see those flashes from a distance and then just avoid that area altogether. Uh, but something like this, I mean, we're, we're playing this cognitive game and that we're trying to tax and, you know, completely tax their cognitive abilities by the sheer number of cameras, the fact that they are entirely passive. They're not emitting anything whatsoever in terms of any visible light, day or night. Uh, they are camouflaged to uh, the highest degree that we're capable of, you know, without, you know, cutting into trees and, and boring the cameras into the tree itself. It still has a bit of a profile, but we're using, we're trying to tax their cognitive abilities as such that they can't possibly see all of them, remember where they all are, avoid them all. And then we're going to mix it up by having our people act as almost like a, a distraction, a deterrent, kind of the sleight of hand moving along because it seems to be based on the group's experiences that people are observed and followed and, uh, for lack of a better term, stalked very often. And so if you're stalking someone and that's the focus of your attention, you might walk right through those cameras because you're not paying attention to that. I think the other big thing is expectation. You know, if you walk into 
an environment and you're looking for something, you're more prone to find it. So both of you uh, who deploy the cameras and know where they are, your eyes will be drawn to them because you expect them to be there and you roughly know uh, where they are. But something that's not having that expectation, like, you know, we kind of see what we expect to see. And so there's more things in the environment that we could possibly ever observe. You know, how many things do all of us walk right by and never notice? Because it's not what we're looking for. It's not what we're focused on. And it's not what we're expecting to find. And I think that would come into play here. So we're we're trying to engage these things in a game of chess. Uh, you know, this cognitive battle that we can win. It's very difficult to compete with these things on a physical level. But I think we can outsmart them. And that is, you know, this multi-tiered approach of overlapping fields of view taking advantage of the terrain and, you know, a choke point or bottleneck uh, to the best of our abilities, uh, camouflaging them, making them entirely passive, like all those things collectively coupled with our abilities to try to draw their curiosity, distract them, trick them into following us or, or hoping for that at least uh, should result in winning this cognitive battle. And it only has to happen once. They only have to walk through the thing one time for us to be successful. And so they're going to be out there a long time. Yeah. I mean, and we, we've, you know, we've said that before, you know, we, they have to be lucky every time, every day we have to be lucky once. And I think this gives us a chance to do that. And uh, in addition, I think one thing we have, we've observed and, and, and I think our theory is, and I think the the data supports it is, you know, these animals do have some difficulty multitasking, uh, keeping up with multiple people. Um, when a group of three or four goes on a hike, you know, they hear something shadowing them, uh, following them. Um, you know, that's pretty common. Uh, if that group splits up, it's pretty common for our members to start hearing wood knocks and, and things like that, almost as if it's causing the animal stress that it has misplaced someone. Um, it can't keep up with everybody if everyone splits up. And, um, and, and again, the multitask element, if it's so focused on a group, then what we're banking on and hoping for is that maybe it's not capable of, of thinking about those cameras at the same time. And, and I think some of our experiences back that up. And so that's another thing that's playing into this, uh, this camera array and, and, and the uh, planning that went behind it. I think that uh, if our guys do go back and forth through the area on hikes and things, and if these animals act as they have in the past, um, there's a good chance that, you know, cause they're going to stay, they're not going to follow them directly. They're going to kind of, uh, kind of be lateral to them. They're going to kind of flank them on either side and, and, and shadow them. Uh, they ought to walk right, right through the array. And, uh, that's, that's really what we're banking on and hoping for. So based on that premise, Mike, um, about them not, uh, uh, apparently not having the ability to multitask very well based on that premise and also on the premise that they are oftentimes watching us. In fact, one, one of our assumptions is you should assume that you're always being watched in there. Uh, you know, time after time, well, we've had people uh, enter into the area only to for the team that was there to have heard a wood knock, uh, seemingly a wood knock that announced the incoming team. And so, Based on that, based on the fact that they seem to be lacking in multitasking skills, 
and that they seem to have a very watchful eye. They seem to know when we enter into the valley, they seem to, uh, we always assume that, there, that there's a sentry or, or, or one or two of them watching us. I had some trepidations when I heard you two were going in there to deploy the cameras and, and, and no one else was going in with you because we had talked about at length about um, having other people there to create diversions away from from the task uh, that you and Bud had, which was to deploy the cameras. So I think it's probably a, a reasonable assumption at this point um, that you were watched at least part of the time. And we do have some data, from, particularly from coyotes, uh, alpha male coyotes that um, in a study that was published back in, I think it was 2003, University of Nebraska, where these alpha male coyotes just avoided the camera traps that were placed out once they knew they were associated with the humans. Now, those cameras weren't, they weren't camoed, uh, uh, to my knowledge, the ones with the University of Nebraska study. So what are your thoughts regarding that, the possibility that they may have seen you deploy these cameras? Do you think there's any possibility that they just may avoid the area, that they just may avoid going through there? So what are your thoughts on that, Mike? What do you think, do you think uh, if they, that, that you may have been watched? And if you, if you were, do you think that impedes uh, our ability to get photos? I would almost bet that we were watched at least part of the time. That's just, as you said, the the, the data over the years seems to support that. Uh, if we go back to the the multitasking thing, um, when the valley is occupied with with our investigators, um, I think they're going to prove to be a more interesting watch, more worthy of the attention of these animals uh, than the cameras are. So. Uh, even though we may have been watched deploying some of the cameras, if these guys are going about, if they're doing day hikes, if if if, if they're um, going about their daily business in and around the valley, they're going to prove, in my opinion, a more interesting target. And so uh, if we're right about the multitask, then the camera thing should lead the mind. They're going to be focused on these people and seeing what they're up to watching them. And so, so if we're right about the multitasking issue, uh, then maybe that goes out the window. The second thing I would add is I think part of the problem uh, with the game cameras in the past is how often we had to visit those spots. We had to go in every four, five weeks to change cards, change batteries, and just repeated visits to the same spot you know, we learn through repetition. I think I think everything, we, we, every animal, every person, we, we learn through repetition. And so seeing if, if we were being watched as we did those things, these animals saw us repeatedly go to the, not just the same area, but the same tree to deal with the same funny looking box on the tree, you know, over and over and over again. And they may not have, I don't think they have any idea what they are, but they think, okay, that's got something to do with those guys. We need to stay away from it. And if it what if these animals watched us go a dozen times to the same tree, okay, you know, uh, we're avoiding that. The beauty of, of these cameras and, and with what Bud has done by disabling the nighttime capabilities is these batteries are going to last us all summer throughout and, and well into the, the winter months. Uh, we, we found through a lot of experimentation that it's the night shots that ate up all the battery power. So theoretically, no one should have to go visit these cameras at all until maybe January. 
And so, okay, maybe they saw us put them out initially, but is that animal going to remember where all 24 are in three months, four months, five months? And uh, I think that's a big difference between what we've got going now and what we had uh, back in the old forest vigil days. Yeah, Matt had some uh, interesting pictures. Um, Matt, you sent those pictures to me. Uh, what last week we were discussing this and um, pictures of some kitties, some bobcats, and you had the nighttime photos, and the bobcat was looking straight at the camera, so he absolutely saw the infrared indicator. And then you had pictures of the same cat during the daytime, like the next day or, or several days later, and he just walked right by the camera and like he didn't even look at it. So it's like during the daytime he never even noticed the thing, but at nighttime with these infrared indicators going off. He was, I mean, he was just looking straight at it. Uh, and then you had a number of those photos that, uh, you know, con- contrasting between the nighttime behavior, which it, 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 it affected its nighttime behavior, but the, but the camera did not affect its daytime behavior, which I, I thought was extremely interesting. Yeah, I, I helmed a project for a full year. Now, I've been using game cameras for a very long time, going back to, I don't know, 2006 at least. Um, but there was a full year when I had a full-time project, and that included nine Reconyx cameras that were three RC60s and six HC600s, which were, you know, of of their day. This was 2012, 2013, kind of the, the most high-quality, uh, covert, hyperfire units. And so I used them in various environments in the Southern Appalachians for a long time. And so I have hundreds of examples of animals, you know, again, deer, bear, uh, coyotes, bobcats, hogs, walking directly by these cameras in the daylight and never paying them any attention. And then all of those species stopping and staring directly into them at night and being, you know, the hyper fires trigger and they'll fire 10 shots immediately upon the first trigger, regardless of whether the thing stays in the frame or not. So you end up with a lot of photos. And so it just became clear to me that the, the way that animals detect these cameras in the environment is not smell because that shouldn't change day or night uh it's not a sound issue i mean obviously during certain times of the year the the environment is noisier with insect sounds etc but these were out during the dead of winter when you can hear a pin drop day or night uh it had to be the ir flash and so again it's just not you don't have to invoke the supernatural to say that you know that wood apes might be able to see IR light because so very many animals can. I mean, we have to remember the the definition of infrared is below the human detectable you know, frequency level or spectrum of light. It does not apply. Those cameras are supposed to be invisible. <laughs> They're supposed to have an invisible infrared capability. That's just, oh my gosh, that just uh, goes against their marketing so, so, uh, so negatively. <laughs> well, they definitely are invisible to humans, and maybe the primary application is to catch poachers or criminals or trespassers or you know uh, bad actors out in in some of these environments. But it's certainly not undetectable to to wildlife that's selected for night vision. And so, again, I think when we're talking about perception and expectation with something like the Hadrian's Wall, I mean, I do not subscribe to this idea that that wood apes have superior intelligence to humans. That just doesn't seem to be the case. Again, it seems that they're primarily selected for physical adaptations. They're certainly intelligent, as all great apes or higher primates are. But if you think about something like, all right, well, there seem to be at least a handful of individuals that are resident in this particular valley. 
based on you know their their physical appearance, their size, uh, their coloration of of their hair, uh, et cetera. Even if one of those individuals saw you put all those things up, how does that extend to all the other ones? They don't seem to have an articulated language. You know, they make faux speech sounds like uh, sounds that are reminiscent of some type of vocal utterances, but other apes make similar sounds too. But even if they did have an articulated language, let's say, you know, for example, the, the individual that we called Old Gray saw you put them up. Do you really think Old Gray can... Go back to the other individuals and say, hey, there's roughly 20, 22, 23, something like 24 cameras down there. They've selected <laughs> this one species of tree. Now, this section of the valley, while rich in resources, it, it, it is a, a bottleneck for other wildlife that we rely on, be it uh, small fur-bearing animals or larger things like ungulates that we opportunistically prey on, as well as an abundance of nuts. We need to do our best to avoid that area. And so avoid these particular species of trees. Uh, in, there's just no way that that information can be transmitted across individuals. So even if one or two individuals saw that process, it's still, and again, I just, I don't think, I think we'd be giving them far too much credit and it is worth treating them as if they are as intelligent as people, because that's kind of a, a security, like a safety net to, to again, maximize our cognitive abilities and plan for and predict and try to tax their cognitive abilities. But in reality, I don't think they are. I don't think that they have that ability. I mean, do any of you, do you think right now, Mike and Bud, you could tell me on a, you, you could take a, like a Google Earth screenshot and draw where every one of those cameras are and you deployed them. You know, I mean, half of us can't find our car keys uh, on any given day, you know, so even humans, this would tax the human level of cognitive ability. It certainly would these animals, I would suspect. I hear you. But we, you know, we do have some data on chimps, man, that it's, it's really some striking, uh, very curious information. Uh, you know, when, when chimps go into battle, they go into battle to, uh, you know, to to take over uh, nut groves or whatever. Each one of the chimps knows their particular task. It's communicated somehow through body language, sign language, some some sort of some sort of uh, movements. Each chimp knows its its given task. Each each one knows its place in the entire scheme of things, and they're able to communicate that somehow. Um, and we also have you know the knowledge that chimps can chimps are superior to humans when it comes to. Uh, recalling placement of objects and, and that sort of thing. So um, I don't know. It just, uh, <laughs> I just wouldn't put it past them. I hear what you're saying. I totally get it, but I don't know. I just wouldn't put it past them to be able to communicate somehow, some way that there's something in this area that they, that they need to avoid. I mean, I, I could totally be in left field with that, but that's just my thoughts on it. And, and here's the beauty of it. I mean, we're going to learn from this experiment. Um, if, for example, like I believe we stated, these cameras are all to the to the west of our base camp. If where the bulk, and, and you can disagree with me if I'm wrong here, Daryl and Matt, the bulk of the activity we've experienced down there seems to come from the west. If suddenly this summer everything happens east of camp, then I think we're going to need to. I think that the 
I think the correlation, there's going to be a correlation there to the fact that those cameras are out. I think that's, but that's something we'll learn. And even though the experiment might not succeed in the way that we hope it succeeds, clear daytime video or pictures, if we're able to extrapolate that that data that hey, somehow, some way, as Daryl just said, these things know and have communicated. They're not coming in from the West anymore. They're all coming in from the East uh, when they want to harass us or observe us, whatever. I, I think that'll be a fascinating result. Uh, now, it didn't get us what we wanted, but yet we still learned something. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to gather as much data, learn as much as possible about them. And, and we do want that, that, that money shot. But with every single thing we learn, I think we're one step closer to getting this done. Uh, now, like I said, I'm, I'm really hoping for the, for the photo because it's, it's a pretty expensive experiment we're running. But, um, you know, we're going to learn something from this regardless. Definitely. I, I completely agree with that. I think to Daryl's point about chimps, too, I mean, those sorts of behaviors have been occurring for millennia. In chimps, and so that's something they're selected for. So, whatever whatever behaviors you know contribute to their overall success as individuals and as a species is something that's going to be hardwired and innate in them. And so, certainly, you could expect that that applies to any animal that you're pursuing. And so, I think what we're doing here is doing something that wood apes are not selected for. That you know, the, again, the data suggests, and I'll, I'll I'll hammer this home. You know, and I've been hammering this home for years is that. It seems to be that the most controlling factor of their lifestyle is that they're opportunistic, coordinated ambush hunters. You know, they are omnivores. They seem to eat this variety, you know, diverse diet, but they are often seen by credible and reliable witnesses in this coordinated fashion, ambushing typically whatever the dominant hoofed animal in an area is, whether that's white-tailed deer, mule, uh, mule deer, black-tailed deer, hogs, elk, Etc. And so, if you if you imagine that that's kind of what they're selected to do, which I think is easily demonstrable in the data, because again, they didn't become these big, powerful, uh, night vision capable animals because they're the world's best berry pickers or nut collectors. You know, they have these other abilities, and so they're selected for stalking and uh, anticipating ambush, coordinating ambush, and a lot of that seems to be based around you know, observation and following motion. That's why I think they're probably bad at keeping track of multiple individuals because I don't think they're selected for that. If you follow a herd, you could select the most vulnerable individual, the straggler, and, you know, separate that individual from the greater herd or ambush that individual. Again, totally not unprecedented. Tigers follow the same method. Uh, a lot of other animals do that are ambush predators or at least ambush hunters as part of their food acquisition repertoire. So we're trying to, again, tax that. I don't think they're selected to keep track of multiple stationary camouflaged passive items. It just doesn't seem like it would have contributed to them. So I think those behaviors, those hunting behaviors apply to observing and following human intruders and they clearly you know employ those with us again i think those were selected for hunting i don't think that they've had so many negative interactions with us 
in our prehistory that all of the things they do are strictly uh, an adaptation to human intruders. I think that that this is how they operate and how they acquire large sources of protein. And it just happens to be that those behaviors apply to human intruders. But yet we're, we're taxing that because we're doing things that they're, we're hoping to do things that they're just not selected for and not selected to anticipate. And I think our observations too show that, I mean, we could talk about this uh, at least briefly. It's like, you know, Daryl, yourself had an observation where the thing was standing in the open looking in the general area but it didn't it didn't respond until you moved slightly and so it seems like maybe that's i think you could also potentially interpret the fact that they seem to freeze you know statue still uh whenever they're spotted as another extension or manifestation of this idea that uh, they're very motion focused and movement focused and so when they stop moving it's almost as if they expect, oh, you don't see me any longer because they don't see things that are stationary. So I do think we're we're trying to hit them with things that they're not selected for and tax their cognitive abilities that way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think our the data, at least our data over the last 10 years would support that. Uh, you know, like we talked about, they have a dif- they have a difficult time in multitasking. And then maybe it's related to what Matthew's talking about here and that they're they're selected for you know, uh, tracking a herd of animals. Now, if that herd disperses out into individuals, so they just instantly disperse at the first sign of contact with these apes, how successful would they be then at, uh, you know, at, at tracking all these different animals? And that's what we do typically is we, we separate, we split out into, 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 into what groups of one or maybe even two people, which makes us very difficult to track then. And so, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's definitely uh, something to what you're saying there. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't benefit you to track all those individuals. You would only benefit from, again, focusing on vulnerable individuals or stragglers, and that equates to food acquisition. And so I don't think they're, they're selected for that kind of higher uh, counting ability because uh, it's just not a necessary tool in their lifestyle, in their environment, uh, et cetera. And so I think we're just trying constantly to use that to our advantage. And that's something I try to hammer home to our, our listeners who are researchers. I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are out themselves trying to either see one or photograph one. Uh, and so keep that in mind that, you know, you, you can't necessarily compete with them on a one-to-one level in terms of physicality, but we can outsmart these things. And most efforts in the past have been about kind of trying to out wood ape a wood ape in its environment. And that's just not that feasible or viable, but they, they can definitely be outsmarted. And technology allows us to do that. And especially like the, in this case, the multitude of technology, what I would like to see happen, you know, if, if we get images, I can imagine if you're listening, Bushnell, Reconics, uh, wild game innovations, that, you know, if we get images and that logo is in the bottom corner, I think one of these camera companies is going to be very excited because those images will be spread far and wide. I mean, if anyone remembers the Jacobs photos, which were just awkward photos. The Jacobs of a, bear photos. Yeah, awkward photos <laughs> of a very skinny bear. And the bear was in a very odd position. You, you cynic. <laughs> it wasn't immediately identifiable as a bear. And so the interesting, there's a few interesting things about those photos. Number one, that became one of the biggest Bigfoot related stories of all time. I mean, that was huge. It was, those photos were disseminated around the world. And so that's probably the most coverage. Uh, and I don't recall, but I think it was Bushnell. That's probably the most uh, dissemination that the Bushnell logo and product ever got. 
And so they benefited <laughs> from that. Beyond that, no one questioned whether or not this was a hoax. The question is, it's an animal. What kind of animal is it? Um, and so I, I would hope that if we get images like that, the, the interest from these companies might result in we could build uh, a, a Hadrian's Wall that encompasses, you know, our entire encampment. You know, we could end up with a Hadrian's Wall that's made out of 124 cameras or 224 cameras eventually. So I do think that this is, to Mike's point, a worthy experiment that is definitely just, you know, ripe for being upgraded. Um, you know, that we're testing and trying to shock this system and see what it's capable of and upgrade it and add to it and, and tweak it and modify it. So we are in the learning stages, but I'm I'm very optimistic about it. I mean, this is not forest vigil part two this is something entirely new and i would i would guess right now that this has never been done in any sort of study uh, camera study not for uh, humans whether again poachers trespassers uh, etc uh, not for any wildlife in that you have an, a massive array of cameras with overlapping field of views with the ir lights disabled camouflaged and top-notch uh, camo products I don't think this has ever been done. So this is a, a first, you know, as far as uh, I can tell. And I, I think we are learning, but this is definitely a worthy experiment. And if we are lucky and we do get photographs, I would hope that uh, those companies would be willing to uh, contribute to expanding that or something like that. Because, again, that's just the widespread nature of, of how images you know, the public seems to always be hungry for images. Images always have a bigger impact than any other bit of news related to the Bigfoot subject, uh, the greater, you know, the Sasquatch interest, the Sasquatch phenomenon. And so I, I think that this is a worthy endeavor and it could bear a lot of fruit in the future. Well, I agree with you, Matt, and, and I'm excited about it. Um, but I'm also excited because this is not the only thing we're doing. You know, um, I mentioned in a podga podcast a couple of months ago, you know, we're we're throwing every rock we've got in our pocket uh, at these things this summer. We, we've got all kinds of uh, uh, activities, experiments uh, th that we're undertaking um, to try to get that evidence that, that we're after. And this is one of them. And it, it's one of the, the aspects I'm very excited about. And, and I've always been a fan of the, the game cameras. I've done a lot of that on my own privately. You know, they they don't get hot, they don't get cold, they don't get scared in the dark. They sit there and they and they work. Now it used to be twenty four hours a day. We've disabled the uh, the nighttime capabilities now, but you know they're out there when we're not watching, when we can't, and uh, it's a way for us to continue to work even if we're not there. And and so. It, it's uh, it's very exciting to me, and but but again, it, it's it's just one of the things we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, but I, I think of all the, the camera type projects we've done, this by far has the highest chance to succeed of anything we, we've we've tried to do before, and and really really excited about it. And and you're you're absolutely right. We could use um, we could use a few more if anyone's out there listening and wants to volunteer. Um, but um, we can tweak it, we can adjust it, we can move them as we see fit, as we learn over these months. And again, we just have to get lucky once. And I, th I think by having these cameras out there, we increase our odds of getting lucky just exponentially. 
You know, the passive IR sensor on a game camera is like a little honeycomb-looking array that detects um, differential uh, heat differentials. So it's a passive sensor, but it's a passive IR sensor. That's why it's called a PIR sensor. So it senses heat right. that moves at, it across that honeycomb spec, that honeycomb uh, assemblage of various um, sensors. And so what I found is that larger, hotter things pre- present more of a movement differential at a greater distance. So, for example, a small thing like a bird has to be fairly close. So let's say that your camera can see basically infinite field of view. Like if you had an unobstructed mile, you know, your camera, it'd be a little tiny dot, just a few pixels, uh, but it could see, you know, as far as the eye can see, let's say. But it will only trigger within a certain range. So your camera has like a a visual range that's based on that passive IR sensor. Um, So something has to walk within, let's say, 30 feet. 20 feet, whatever the distance may be. But I've found that they will trigger with larger, hotter things at a greater distance. A great example of this is cars, especially in the summertime. I've got many, many pictures where the only thing that seemed to have triggered that camera was a car on a forest service road or a distant road that is well beyond the effective range of the camera. And that's because the car is such a big, hot thing that's been in the sun all day that it creates enough of a differential that the camera fires, um, but the thing might be enough in the distance that it's not really visible. That might apply to wood apes. They might be the biggest, hottest things out there in North America, uh, besides the four of us on this call. But uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but so what I've found is that, you know, how many cameras, how many photographs have you all seen of cameras firing at night and there's nothing there? Oh, many. yeah, plenty. Yeah, tons, tons. It could be the case that, that that was, you know, warm air blowing through, that it was, you know, just movement, air blowing the foliage in such a way that the foliage triggers the motion. But it could also be a larger, hotter thing at a greater distance. Right. And so that got me thinking, well, maybe that's the same phenomena that's happening with these big, hot vehicles is that, it isn't coming within that 30-foot range, and yet it's still triggering it, which means that that might be why they can see those flashes at a distance, because if they're coming at it head-on, it starts flashing before they're really in the kind of optimal visual range where you would end up with photographs. And so I do think that, yeah, you know, that's a long-winded way to say that, yes, disabling right. this IR flash is, I think, the most significant and will be the most effective portion of this whole endeavor from the technology side. And then from the strategy, uh, tactical side, the deployment with overlapping fields of view camouflaging should solve the rest of that equation. We'd like to thank Bud and Mike for coming on the, uh, the podcast and talking to us about this. Uh, been a very interesting discussion. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll have you back in six or seven, eight months, uh, talking about the uh, the success of it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I, so. I do too. I've uh, Like I've told Mike, I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, optimistic nonetheless. Yeah, we'll have to decide whether we call it the maze Melliker photos or the Melliker maze photos. <laughs> so we'll let you guys battle that out. Alphabetize it. Simple. Uh, like the NAWAC photos. So this is definitely a team effort. <laughs> Well, we'd like to uh, welcome Dusty Haithcote and Ashley Tremaine uh, to the to the show. Um, we call Dusty. We affectionately call him Doc, 
because uh, Doc has a background as a hospital corps in the United States Navy, and he is now a first responder, EMT. So he's got an extensive background. He's been very well trained in observation, and uh, he, uh, he takes note of things really well. So um, Doc and Ashley had a very interesting experience in Area X on a scouting, little scouting operation, a little reconnaissance. So, Doc, I'm not going to take up much time. I want to I want to hear you and Ashley talk. So um, maybe you can just uh, take us from the top. What happened? What would you see? Sure. Um, well, we went up there. Do you remember the date exactly? It was the end of May. It was the end of May. right? Yeah, right before, I think probably May 28th, 29th, we were up there. And um, basically, we just wanted to have some time to, to get away and, and whatnot. And I'm also, I was elected quartermaster of the NAWAC, so... For that, basically, my, my job for that is uh, kind of keep track of all the gear and, uh, you know, basically like a military quartermaster would or supply guy or logistics guy. So um, we ended up going up there for a few days and we camped at a site off of where we normally stay. Like we didn't stay at the cabin. We just stayed in a tent. And um, part of the reason we went by the by the uh, cabin was kind of get kind of get some eyes on all the essential equipment for the operation kicked off. and. Then there was a couple weird spots I wanted to show her. We've got a abandoned cabin and a waterfall and a couple other cool places to see that she wanted to check out. So we left probably about 13, 1400 uh, in the afternoon and we left the ATV at camp and walked all the way down what we call Camp David Road, which is, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, three quarters, or half a mile, three quarters of a mile, something like that. And uh, walked past the cabin and everything. We stayed on what we call the Bass Loop, which is a big trail just to the north over a little branch and uh as we were following this this trail we we kind of we came to our property line and crossed the gate and right in front of that gate maybe 20 yards 30 yards is a little confluence where the branch we call the bowman branch is that connects the bass loop north to the bass loop what we call bass loop south and as we crossed that um we walked up to the little branch and we heard something off to our left which would be our south we both kind of snapped and looked over, and what I saw was uh, it was a very large gray blur, and it was moving extremely fast uh, back the way we had come, probably 40 yards from where we were, uh, from where we were standing. I heard four footfalls, and then it was gone, and then I heard nothing. We both kind of looked at each other and was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we saw, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so weird, you know, it's not expecting it, obviously. Yeah. And so later I walked over there, right where we both agreed where we saw it. And uh, she took a picture, and my head is about, what do you say, 18 inches, 20 yeah. inches below? The, yeah, right about. Okay, where, where you saw where you saw its head. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean you were that, it was that much taller than you? Oh, it's huge, yeah. Yeah, wow. I'm, a, I'm, I'm six foot flat in boots. Yeah. And it was it was up there, man. It was huge. <laughs> and when I say it was a big gray blur, it's exactly what it was—a big giant gray blur, just booking it. Fascinating. So, anyways, we uh, we kind of stood there in stunned silence for a little bit. And when I walked over there, I kind of started walking in the brush where it was, and frankly, I just wasn't comfortable. Just, I mean, she was carrying a, a rifle with her and sidearm, but you know, I wasn't comfortable just leaving her there by herself. It was the first time ever down there, and. Uh, you know, to be honest with you, if if I'd had a shot shot opportunity down there, just her and I, I just I, I had a first safety sake, I probably would have taken it anyway. 
But the whole encounter with that blur was maybe three seconds. I mean, I didn't even have time to think to raise my rifle at that point. I mean, it was that fast. Yeah, that definitely. It definitely doesn't sound like a shot. I mean, I, you know, I've had similar encounters, and you just, you know, you don't, you just don't have time. It's just uh, you're processing it, right? I mean, you're, the whole time you're seeing it, you're processing what you're seeing. Well, absolutely, and I mean, at that point, there's no way to positively identify a target at all. Yeah, we, we all know that it's it's something. You know that some hillbillies are running around on stilts, you know, and a great <laughs> running that fast. But you know, still, anyway, so we stood there for a little bit, and then uh, we took off. We went on the hike, probably about three miles uh, down where we call Fanghorn, real old growth forest, real nasty, nasty brush, and went to the abandoned cabin. Almost made it to the Emerald Sea, but it was flooded out down there, so we turned around. Anyway, uh. We came back and I mean we weren't even being quiet, man. I mean we we're we we're stomping, we we're tired, we we're hot, we're out of water. We we're just kind of ready to get back to camp. And uh, we're on the Bass Loop North again, and you could just barely see camp through the trees over the branch. So I mean you could see like little bits of the the what we call the command hooch and you know the stuff on the on the tables, just you know little bits and pieces of it. You could barely see the cabin as we were walking. We heard, it sounded like just a male voice and just speaking, and we couldn't really understand what it sounded like, but it was like, oh, they're the bad, bad, bad. That's how you describe it. And we're like, all right, well, I guess somebody's here, man. Let's, you know, go say hi or whatever. So we get to we get to where the, I guess, the little driveway portion of it is, and, and there's there's no cars, there's nobody there. So I call, uh, call Paul Bowman, but I was like, hey, man, you know, I don't know what's going on. Uh, we heard somebody talking in camp. Uh, we're right here. I'm just making sure it's cool with you guys. If we, you know, go check it out. He's like, yeah, of course. And, you know, as we're talking, we hear this giant slam of something against the, the back wall of the cabin, that south wall. Of the wow. Cabin. At that point, I was like, just shut up, Paul. I got I to gotta go. And just, you know, put the phone up and told Ashley, like, stay right here. Let me go check. And so, you know, I walked in hollering like, hey, you know, come on. Let's have a conversation. It's private property, all that good stuff. And no issue. That, that was the end of that adventure. We were both kind of kind of perplexed on that whole thing. <laughs> Wow. I'm sure Matt, I'm sure both of us have, I mean, I've got some questions. I'm, I'm going to let Matt speak up here because I know he's got some as well. Well, I'm definitely interested to hear Ashley's perspective. You know, I think there might be this perception from some of the more skeptical or cynical audience that, you know, that's just like this in club thing and we're all in on some big secret. And so we share these stories, but I, I'm always fascinated when someone who's outside of the organization who doesn't have any affiliation or history of like pursuing this subject has an encounter like that. So I I just love to hear Ashley, what did you see? Uh, how was that process? Did you come into it thinking that these animals might be real or, or uh, no? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, I mean, he's told me some crazy stories and I guess I was optimistic, but I didn't actually think that there was anything to it. I mean, it just, it sounds like when you're hearing the stories, it sounds like it's too much and there's no way. Right. Right. I mean, how, how can it be? Right. I mean, you got this big honking ape that nobody's gotten a, fi- a picture of yet. Right. Yeah, you're like, OK, yeah, that sounds real scary. Like somebody's throwing rocks at you, but maybe it's just acorns. How do you know? Right. Um, so for me, we were just going hiking. <laughs> I wasn't expecting anything at all. And he was maybe six or eight feet in front of me. I was actually watching the ground because I didn't want to step on a snake. And so we're walking along and we were not being quiet at all. But all of a sudden he just kind of stops and points. 
And so I looked up and looked over in that direction. And all I saw at first was a big gray thing. Like I, I don't even know how to describe it at first. It just looked kind of like a gray mass. And I didn't even put two and two together until I heard the four footsteps and saw it moving. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. And so like, as I looked up, it was kind of turning. And then you heard the four very distinct footfalls and then it disappeared off between two more trees and into some brush. And I don't think it even clicked for a solid 10 seconds after that. I kind of was like, what was that? What what are you pointing at? What was that? Is that like, (laughs) was it a bear or, um, so no, I didn't come into it expecting anything at all. Honestly, I was hoping, but I wasn't expecting anything. Well, then the sound of the voices, like the speech-like utterances, uh, did that, was that unnerving at all? No, I mean, honestly, I thought it was people talking off in the distance. None of it, none of it was unnerving at the time. Thinking back on it, it's a little scary. It's after you process it, right? I mean, after you've had, to t- had time to process, okay, I, I'm pretty certain I just saw something that I can't find in any science book. And, that, and when you start to think about that, then it starts getting a little creepy, doesn't it? Yeah, right. And especially like the voices, I honestly just sounded like people talking in the distance. It didn't sound like anything sinister or scary at all. Yeah, that was that slam behind the cabin was what kind of got it for us. I was That was just the hillbilly throwing his stilts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so from that moment, like when you made your way back to your camp, did anything else happen that night? Did you hear anything following you or anything, you know, once the sun went down? Um, that night, I mean we heard things moving and whatnot, but I wouldn't say it was anything abnormal. It just was kind of like being in the woods at night. Yeah, especially watch times where you got raccoons and possums and all the fun stuff kind of moving around. You know, we didn't hear anything really significant that much that night. But uh, the next day got a little bit interesting. Yeah. Um, so the next morning we went down. Um, we went down again just to check things out. I think we were just going to hang out for a little bit. And on the way back, we had both been riding the four-wheeler back up the road. And he dropped me off because he had forgotten to close one of the gates. So he dropped me off and he's like, wait here and then we'll go down to the waterfall. So as I'm standing there, I was there for probably five or ten minutes by myself. It wasn't too long, but I was just standing there. um, And I started hearing things rustle around in the woods behind me. And then I got a really strong whiff of something, something musty. I don't know how to describe it. Sort of like a wet dog, but a lot more pungent than that. How about the uh, gorilla section or the orangutan section in the zoo? Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it was similar to that. It's nothing that I've ever, there's no, I've never smelled anything that was just like that before, but it was similar. Okay. Um, definitely really pungent, not very pleasant. <laughs> um, and so I started hearing it move around. I smelled the smell. And then about that time, I could hear him coming back up the road towards me. And whatever was rustling the trees behind me took off. And I saw maybe from like mid thigh down on something that was gray and hairy. Um, And it was just for a fraction of a second. It was moving back up the mountain down the trail. Wow. Yeah. So here's here's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like y'all just walked into like two or three of these things that were for whatever reason, they were there at camp. Maybe they were expecting us because we have been going in there around the same time frame every year for the last umpteen years. And this year we're late because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, we had to uh, uh, postpone our operation this summer. And 
a lot of us have speculated that maybe they were maybe they were staking out the camp anticipating our arrival and you you all uh, camped about three quarters of a mile away and then you hiked into camp right so you caught something you caught I think you caught them there at the camp and they didn't realize that you had come in is what it is and lo and behold boom shakalaka there you, you know you see you see this thing and then you have the the, the faux speech you hear, you hear the banging on the cabin and then the next day ashley is being stalked i mean it's it's classic you know it's classic for that place absolutely and that night didn't you hear like around camp we ended up switching uh we, ended up switching seats. <laughs> we did end up switching seats at the at, at camp that night <laughs> well how come um i was sitting to, like next to the trees and he was more into the clearing and um, I don't know what it was. It could have been nothing, but there was something moving around in the trees and it was just, it was extremely unsettling. Well, you know, after you've, after you've been ripped into this new room, you've been pushed, violently pushed into this new room of reality, you know, whereas before this thing was just a, a myth. You, you, you didn't really even think about it much. You just thought it was a kind of cool stories. All of a sudden, it becomes reality for you. So now, when you're out in the woods, now you've got this other, this other animal about which you know very little, other than what you've heard on your scene on a documentary, and it Dusty has told you. And so now your your mind is having to contend with that, and it, you know, it has a way of getting to you. You know, yeah, it could have been just that. I, I, I don't know, but we did switch seats. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember after we saw the. I had the first encounter that day, that day before. I looked down. I was like, "Yeah, it must be hillbillies, huh?" I can't get away from the hillbilly on stilts image. I think that's so funny. <laughs> I want the outro of this to be like, you know, this is the official podcast of the North American Hillbilly on Stilts Conservancy. You know, like. <laughs> that's great. Now I've got that image in my head, man. <laughs> There genuinely is something to this idea of like when you are encountering things in the dark and for most people that haven't had these encounters or haven't, you know, engaged or confronted the information, there's a multiple choice list in your mind of what it could be. And, you know, wood apes just aren't on that list. And then to your point, to have an encounter like that and see it now it is. And so probably from now on, when you do hear sounds in the night, that is going to be one of those options that you have to, you know, weigh when you're trying to figure out what it is that you're hearing. And it's definitely not a comforting option. It's a rude awakening, man. And it, I feel sorry for people that go in there and this happens to them. I really do, because it's, uh, you know, uh, again, you, you've you've had this one preconceived notion in your head and then you encounter something like this. And now just think, Ashley, had you been in there, had you stayed in there for two weeks and you had several of these encounters? I mean, we've seen people I've literally I literally know of people who basically curl up in a in a ball, uh, you know, because they freaked out so badly after having these sorts of contacts, you know. Um, So, you know, it was exciting, though, like I none of it scared me. It was a little parts of it were uncomfortable, but none of it scared me. It was just exciting. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So you want, you want to go back? Oh yeah. She's a keeper doc. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, she's talking about wanting to file a membership ship application and everything. <laughs> yeah. I told her before we went in, I think I said it probably 18 times on the way up there. I was like, you know, if, if we do have a sighting of some sort, don't expect it to be, you know, the Patterson Gimlin Patty. Yeah, that's right. You know, 
taking four steps, turn vogue, and keep walking. It's going to be, you know, a boyer. It's going to be, you know, through some trees, through some brush. You know, it's going to be something weird. And you called it. Yeah, you called it perfectly, man. That's experience, though, right? That's because you have experience. You know, I mean, you, you, you've had you'd had a visual before. And so you you knew from that one alone. And then, you you know, from everybody else's observations, the, you knew exactly what it would be like. And that's what people don't understand. They you know, they're like, well, why don't you why don't you shoot it? Why don't you get a photograph? Well, yeah, you know, easy to say, almost impossible, it seems to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been saying for years when, when we when we knock one down, it's just, it's going to be the the cousin Clem or Jed of the whole plant, <laughs> like the kind of kind of slow one, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, man, go out there and see what, see what they're doing. In their cousin back, Clem. You know? <laughs> hey, I, that's a, I'm offended, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got a cousin Clem, and he's he's right as rain. <laughs> Pruitt, oh man, you cracked me up. (laughs) Well, yeah, I definitely think this was a fascinating observation. I mean, it's so fortuitous. You know, it's been a tough year for a lot of people. You know, many of us have been affected by the pandemic in terms of uh, our loved ones, our own health, our livelihoods, et cetera. And so we had to delay the beginning of this operation. And so we had gone into this year with this tremendous amount of optimism, Uh, all this new equipment, all this new gear, new plans and strategies and tactics. And so I think morale might have gotten a few bruises. Um, And then this happened and we were all fired up. I mean, quickly, you know, Paul posted an update with your permission after he got your call and it exploded into like a multi-page thread on our internal forum. And people were texting me and we're all fired up. Oh my God, somebody saw something. And so I'm really glad that you both went down there. I'm very, very glad that you were fortunate enough to see this, and especially you, Ashley, being totally new. I mean, this has been, it's its kind of like revivified uh, the optimism for the operation, and it's the first official visual for the year. I would definitely suggest to our new listeners to go back and listen to an episode of our Apes Among Us podcast called Shades of Grey, where we interview a whole host of people within the NAWAC and even one who's not in the organization who have seen large very imposing, very bold gray wood apes in Area X. So there's at least two of them that we're aware of because Travis Lawrence saw two at a given time. But, you know, this is certainly another one to put in that pile of sightings of these, you know, the largest gray individuals that are down there, which is, you know, absolutely fascinating. They're almost um, like the the celebrities of the valley in my mind because that's the one I want to see at this point. I want to see one of the big gray ones. So I'm I'm very envious of both of you and I'm so glad you saw that and I'm so glad that you shared it with us and our listeners. Absolutely, man. We're jazzed about it. And I was definitely jazzed. I know I know she was too. She's mm-hmm. grinning the whole time. <laughs> Matt and I would like to thank our guests for this episode, Dusty, Ashley, Mike, and Bud. We also want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. And if you haven't already, we hope you'll listen to all our earlier episodes of Apes Among Us. Also, please visit our website at www.woodape.org. There, you can peruse our Washita Project monograph, a paper that chronicles our work in Area X up to 2014. You can also check out our Tag 7 paper about our use of radio tags in the valley. In that paper, we put forth the argument that we likely tagged one of these elusive animals in 2015. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, too. Keep your ears open, 
We believe we have some great episodes planned for the upcoming months. And as always, we'll be sure to keep you informed about any exciting activities involving our field teams currently conducting field research around the clock in Area X. Until next time, I'll leave you with this. Good, better, best, never let it rest. To your good is better, and your better is best. Take care.